I'm an alcoholic. My name is Misun. Hi. Um, I, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me to uh, this wonderful conference. I've been hearing about it. Uh, all good things. Um, and so I'm very excited to be here, and I'm so glad to um, uh, see some familiar faces. And um, I don't know, just thank you. <laughs> I just want to thank anyone that had anything to do putting this on because I know it's a lot of work. So I try to avoid things like that, you know. Um, John and Cindy, we had a dinner together, and we're talking about, you know, things that, you know, like you end up doing for state conventions and stuff when it's a local. And I don't know. It's I never, like, was asked or, you know, volunteered to do anything. But then you end up, like, doing five things. I don't know why that happens. But... Anyway, I know it's a lot of work, so I, I want to thank you. And um, and uh, let's see, I don't know where to start. Um, so, well, I like the way you guys start, so I'm, I'm just going to start the same way. <laughs> so, uh, by God's grace and program of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship of I've Been Sober since January 27th in 1995. And for that, thank you. <laughs> For that, I am truly grateful. Um, I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. And um, I sponsor other women, and they have sponsees. And I have a home group, and it's a, um, it's a Saturday night speaker meeting at um, 7.30, and it's called Saturday night speaker meeting. Um, <laughs> um, which I'll be missing tomorrow. And um, I have a service position. I don't know. Uh, I, I go out of town a lot, so I hate having a Saturday as my home group. But they let me be a greeter. And it took me 22 years to get that job. Um, <laughs> and nobody really wanted me to greet anybody for a really long time. Um, I, I really don't know why, except I am very antisocial. And anyway... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a greeter now. Um, anyway, um, oh, by the way, um, Roger Hightower, I don't know who, how many, I know somebody knows him. He says hello. I have to get that out of the way. Um, and my fiance, Jim, wanted me to say, you tell those people in Kentucky that I send my very best, I sent you. <laughs> Every time I come home, he's like, did you say it? Did you say it? So now nah, I've said it. So there you go. Um, so I grew up in Seoul, Korea. And my parents basically took the spanking to a whole another level that, like, it's um, kind of obscene, I think. And uh, I had three older sisters and one younger brother. And my parents basically spent all their time and energy and money trying to educate us, and education was very, very important. Uh, I grew up with no God. They said there was no such a thing. Smart people don't believe in that. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, my, my, my father, my sisters, my younger brother, they all have, like, you know, something in the end of their name. Like, they got doctored in something, teaching them something. I mean, they just, like, all brainy people. Um, however, I don't have any of that. Um, I think I was busy trying to get to AA. That's all I can say. Uh, studying was not my priority. And I had a, a learning disability when I was growing up, which it's just frustrated my parents. Uh, I am dyslexic, and I'm left-handed. Not that those things make you stupid, but they do in Korea. So, um, I got uh, spanked a lot at, at school uh, because I was trying to write things le left-handed, and that was just like being, oh no, like I'm a devil's child. Um, 
in at home, I got uh, a lot of beating, you know, and there were times that, you know, I remember my mom choking me, and sometimes the kitchen utensils were involved, and, you know, sometimes they'll just, she'll yank my hair out and just toss me against the wall. I remember, like, wearing long sleeves in the summer and all that kind of stuff, and, um, and because it just really frustrated my parents that all, they had given the same education to every one of us. And they were, I mean, my sister was an excellent student, and my, so was my brother, but I wasn't. And it, it just didn't make any sense to them. And so I, my sisters were calling me stupid, and I just felt like, you know, I was this dumb kid growing up and that I wasn't going to belong anywhere. And... um but I, I, I talk about my childhood to, like, really say one of the most important thing is that none of these things make me an alcoholic. It does not matter what my parents did or didn't do, what my sisters did or didn't do or say, have nothing to do with me being an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because when I take a drink, I get a special effect that does not happen to normal people. And when I drink, I need more. You know, it's like Carl talks about it in his talk. Now I'm going to steal his talk. <laughs> um, he says, the more I drink, the thirstier I get. And that's basically, and anyway, and then when I'm, when I'm sober, I'm crazy. And I'm thinking about drinking. And, and then everybody's stupid. I don't know why that happens. But uh, anyway, and so, and the, the effect was so special, I would eventually sell my soul little by little for the next drink. And, um, and when I was 15, my parents sh- shipped me off to a boarding school in North Carolina. And um, I didn't know any, somebody from North Carolina? No? Okay. Somebody was... Anyway, I love the state. But anyway, uh, so I, I get to this boarding school. I didn't know anybody, and I couldn't speak English. So I didn't know what was going on in class. I couldn't make friends, and there were the young kids in the school, and they knew that I couldn't speak. So they would kind of run away from me. They avoid me because they knew that they couldn't really com- converse with me. And so I got extremely lonely at the school, because I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what I was doing there. And I remember during, like, you know, the weekends and long breaks, the parents will come and pick up all their kids, and the whole school would be empty. The teachers were gone. Cafeteria was even closed, and, and no kids around. And I remember I would be all by myself in this whole school. And um, I remember in the, at one time... I was just walking up and down this uh, empty hallway, and only sound I hear is echo my footsteps. And I, I, this thought came to me, and it said, "I don't know why I was born. I don't know what I'm doing here." And um, <clears throat> when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I remember reading Vision for You, and there in that chapter it talks about where we come to a point where we cannot imagine life with, without alcohol, we're jumping off place we wish for the end. And then strangely, when I read that, it immediately took me back to the empty hallway I was walking up and down because I could not imagine life there and I could not imagine my life at home. And um, however, they, were, um, they had a big cafeteria across the campus that was actually college dorm. And this is back in good old days when 18 years old was drinking age, and they had no smoking age. Um, the cafeteria had uh, this little round table way in the back, and they had a um, few kids sitting there. One was dressed in black. Another one had a pink mohawk, and another one looked like Judd Nelson from the Breakfast Club. <laughs> and... Uh, and the guy with the long hair, like, you know, was going to see Judas Priest or something. And I don't even know who they are, but whatever. Um, those kids were the only kids who would not avoid me. They let me sit with them at the lunch table at a dinner. And um, I don't know if they were too stoned to notice me, but 
they didn't care that I was there. Um, and so those are my crew now. So I went, I tagged along, I ate the same time, and you know, and they smoked cigarettes, so they taught me how to smoke cigarette. I, um, I have to say it was Lucky Strike Unfiltered. I know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I did everything they did. And um, one Friday, I'm like so thirsty. I don't know why. When I think about alcohol, I just get thirsty. <laughs> so I have to drink. Wait, anyway, um, one Friday, they were like skipping lunch, skipping dinner, and then, you know, they were like all excited about something, and I don't know what happened, and I just, you know, tagging along, and they were like super excited. They went across the campus, they, they came back, and, uh, and then we went to this park, and what they did is they went over to the college dorm and, and scored some alcohol and funny cigarettes. And um, so they're um, super excited. So they're like passing this beer. I know it was beer. I don't know if it was in a can or if it was in a bottle. And I tell you, when it got to my hand, it was cold to the touch. And I still remember it like it was yesterday, and which is kind of really weird. <laughs> it's like I don't remember ever eating first ice cream, but, you know, I always remember. The first. <laughs> anyway, so um, <clears throat> when it got to my hand, I instinctively knew that I was supposed to chug this thing and I cannot sip it. And I don't know where that thought came from, but I instinctively knew I was supposed to chug it. And uh, I, I don't know where that came from. I think it was God's intuition. I'm not sure. <laughs> but... Uh, um, because, you know, I never saw anybody drink. My parents never drank, not a drop. I wish they had, they were a little uptight, but they never <laughs> drank. And, um, <clears throat> I never saw anybody drink, and I never saw anybody got drunk. And, uh, but when that got to me, I just knew I was supposed to chug it. So, you know, I drank the whole thing, and, uh, and I met had a second one, and the most amazing thing happened. I remember I had this tingly sensation all the way down to fingertips. And when I was drunk, I spoke English. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I was, um, I was uh, uh, talking with them, joking with them. I was cracking jokes. Um, I, I, I knew all the words to Judas Priest songs. <laughs> and, uh, uh, man, I had a time of my life, you know. And uh, uh, I got, like, passed out drunk, and I was running from the cops and <laughs> fell into the poison ivy ditch. and spread. Anyway, that was the first time I drunk. I got drunk. And, uh, but from that day on, I knew this is something I have to do every day. And I don't know what you drank, when you drank, or how often you drank, what day you drank, but my thought was, Hey, I live in America. I have to speak English every day, so I have to drink every day, and that's just how it went. So, I got to know these college kids who would do it for high school kids. So, I would bribe them and get some alcohol. And I mean, every waking moment, I remember being sitting in class, just thinking about how am I going to get this? I mean, it's not easy when you're underage. I mean, a lot of people think it is, but it isn't. And then I got tired of these college kids, so I made fake ID. And uh, mine was actually good because I study fine art. And um, <laughs> this was like good old days. You could actually buy alcohol with fake student ID. Like, come on. I mean, that's like so cool. Anyway, and that's how I'd spend my high school years. And um, I went off to college in New York. Um, I actually got a full scholarship. I don't know how, but <laughs> I, I don't remember going to many classes, but I do have a bachelor degree in fine art somehow. I don't know. But um, uh, when I got to New York, that's when party, like, really took off. Um, I called it a party. Other people said heavy drinking, but, you know, I don't know. Their perceptions all distorted. So I... Um, 
I start clubbing almost every day. I go to, I was like, I became one of those club kids, you know, in the 80s. And it was like everywhere in New York. I mean, if there was a club, I was in it. And I'll go to after our club. And I'll go to after after our club. I had to know the secret and knock through the back door. And I knew the bouncers. And, I mean, I just felt like I lived in it. And um, this is, when, when I start, like, uh, blacking out, I didn't know. That was what it was called until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know any of these languages. It's just the weirdest thing. Um, I just figured I just kind of passed out and woke up, but they said it was blackout. Anyway, so I start blacking out, and and, and then I, I start to, like, needing a drink. Not wanting it, but, like, needing the drink. And um, <clears throat> so, uh, and then I started to do this other stuff. <laughs> Our friend Peter calls it non-conference approved dry goods. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so um, so I mean, I'm like staying up all night <laughs> drinking and doing it and whatever and, and I'm just having a lot of fun, so I think. Anyway, so I, I, I get the degree, and then I get a job in the art world where I got to travel all over the United States. If it had a contemporary museum art, museum of art, I was in it installing something for the openings. And I'll go to all over Europe, you know, doing the same thing. I've been to Italy, Spain, Denmark, Iceland, Sweden. Iceland? Uh, <laughs> anyway, in uh, Amsterdam was a lot of fun. Um, I didn't want to leave, but you know, whatever. Uh, anyway, and this is when I started to hear people nag about my drinking. They will say things like, "What is wrong with her?" Well, I still hear that, but. Um, <laughs> And uh, why, you know, she's, she always smells like alcohol. She's so messed up. She's disgusting. She's this. She's that. She's, I mean, oh, my God. They obviously had a lot of problem with my drinking. However, I didn't. So I figure it's their problem. And that's how delusional I am. I don't even know that, you know, I am, like, affecting these people. So, um they were like nagging at me at work, and I will, I will miss the appointments, I'll miss the deadlines, and I, I mean, I, I'm not showing up for work, and, and it was just, you know, not happening for them. And so they were nagging me so much, and I thought, you know what, I need to do something about this. So I th thought for a while, so, <clears throat> and then I decided to quit the job. So <laughs> I quit my job. So I don't have to hear people nagging. I could drink all day, all night, all by myself. Nobody's going to say nothing to me. And, um, and by this time, I, I'm kind of getting kicked out of bars and stuff. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I did, but they didn't like me much. Um, it, says, it says in the book that we sorted out, uh, we sought our sorted places. I didn't seek them out. I just kind of ended up there, uh, I guess. And uh, Anyway, so... <clears throat> I quit my job and I'm partying all day, mostly by myself because I used, I, I was telling people that, you know, leave me alone, you don't understand, and they eventually all did. And um, <clears throat> so, and then my money ran out and I hate when that happens. <laughs> and I didn't think about that. When you quit the job, like, you don't have income. Like, who knew? I didn't know that. But so anyway, so I'm out of money. So it's becoming a problem. So I had to get a part-time job because I didn't want to get a full-time job because now drinking has become my full-time job plus extra, extra overtime. And, um, but part-time job is not uh, paying the bills. It's not you know, supporting my habit, and it's not happening. And this is when I'm starting to sell my soul little by little, you know, and I started to steal, I started to cheat, I started to lie in order to get that next drink. Um, 
I, uh, Bill Wilson talks about it in his story. He says the curve of his declining moral and health fell off like a ski jump. And this is starting to happening. And I don't, I didn't care. And um, <clears throat> so I was still from the job, part-time job I have. And, you know, I sell everything in my apartment uh, for the drink. And I will, I remember going to this bar that had a sleazy <laughs> bartender, but I knew I'd get a free drink. And I, and I keep going back. And, um, and those are the things I, was, I started doing. And um, winter of 94 and the January 95 came around. I was living by myself in an apartment in New York City. And basically nothing left in my apartment. I'm drinking daily. I loved vodka. Oh, my God. <laughs> when he said vodka, I was just like jumped off and <laughs> get excited. But anyway, um, so... Uh, and and this is my this is how I'm I'm doing it every day and it, and, I, and I don't know what happened and it was just like any other day, and I, I'm sitting in my apartment in the middle of the night and I see a lamp over here and I see three garbage cans full of my own vomit, and the thought came to me and it says, I don't want to be drunk I don't want to be sober I just want to check out, because I knew that I was going to be evicted from that apartment. So that happens when you don't pay the rent, and I was going to be fired from that job, and that happens when you don't go to work and steal from it, I guess. And um, and I had nobody. I didn't even have a drinking buddy. And um, so I am sitting there, and that's what I'm thinking. I don't want to be drunk. I don't want to be sober. I just want to check out. And uh, I didn't know how to do that, and I thought maybe I'll get a gun, but I didn't know where to get a gun in New York. So <laughs> that's out. And then I thought oh, maybe I'll jump off the bridge. But it's very cold in New York in January. So, and I didn't want to go outside. Uh, so I said, forget that. And then I remember a couple of my friends who died of overdose a few months back. And I figured I could do that. So I had vodka and some of the stuff. Um, so I drank the alcohol and I took everything I had and um, when I came to this knock on the door and my sister's standing there when I opened the door my sister used to live in Jacksonville Florida she flew from Jacksonville to New York City and was standing there right there that day not any other day but that day and she looked at me and if I closed my eyes I could still see her um, and she has so much anger and so much um, disgust in her eyes that just tore me to little pieces. And she looked at me and she said, what were you doing last night? So I said I was trying to kill myself. And she said, well, how are you going to do that? And um, I said, well, I dropped the vodka I had and I took everything I had. And she looked at me and she said, I wish you to take more because she'd rather see me dead than the way I looked that day. And um, I would never know to this day what she must have felt to fly from Jacksonville to New York and um, see me that way. And what she did is that she packed some of the stuff I had, and we both got on the plane and flew down to Jacksonville, and she put me straight to detox. And it was her birthday. And I didn't know it for a while, and I cussed her out. And um, I don't know what she must have felt having to do that on her birthday and get cussed out. Um, anyway, so I go to this detox, and it was one of the worst places you could possibly think of. <laughs> it was that it was. It was not one of those fancy ones, I can tell you that. And uh, <laughs> they kept me in there for 10 freaking days, I have to say. Oh, my God. Um, and, and what happened was, I found out this after the fact, she's been going to Alana meetings in Jacksonville, Florida. Mm -hmm. and, um, <laughs> and I had no idea. 
And she, she knew which detox I was supposed to go to Island, and people said, don't send her to any fancy rehab. Send her to the worst place you could think of. <laughs> and, uh, and, and like, okay, which made a lot of sense to me later on, because I remember I'm always broke. So I call up my sister from New York, and I say, hey, send me some money. And uh, she used to, but she stopped doing it. And then one time, she sent me a meditation book. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, you cannot sell that crap. Uh, um, I tried, but it didn't work. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Um, I still have the meditation book, by the way, 22 years later. Um, I sold everything I could think of, but nobody will take that meditation book. But, um, and um, so she was going to design meetings every Wednesday, and, um, and that's how she came to get me. And my employer called, and she got that phone call many times, but I don't know why, but it was that day. And because I've been sober ever since. And I'm, I'm so forever grateful to those Al-Anons in those meetings because um, they didn't know who I was. They, didn't, they never met me, but they, their love for another alcoholic reached me all the way from Jacksonville to New York City and saved my life. And um, sometimes we sit around in the home group. I don't know, maybe you don't do that in Kentucky, but we do it in Florida. Um, say things like, if they want the help, they'll come and get it. And um, I'm here to tell you that I didn't go anyone, I go to anyone, I didn't call anyone, I didn't make an appointment with anyone, I didn't ask for help. Help came to me, and it came from our family group. And uh, um, I'm forever also grateful that Bill Wilson didn't wait around for Dr. Bob to show up. And 82 years later, we still have this thing. And um, thank you. <laughs> I'm getting applause for the Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson's work. <laughs> um, so I'm in the detox for 10 days, and my God, I had to wear this like blue uniform thing. Um, and I had a number painted on the back with the reflective paint. And uh, I don't know if they're going to shoot me if I try to run away. But um, that's what I had to wear. And they would have uh, AA meetings where outside AA people came and held meetings. And uh, I didn't go to any of them because I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> so uh, they say, why aren't you going to these meetings? You have to go to these meetings. And I said, I'm not an alcoholic. And they said, well, if you don't go, we're not going to let you out. And I thought, oh, that's not good. So I went to one of them, and it was Friday night. And two happy AA people came. Gosh. Um, one was a guy and another one was a girl. And, and, and I don't know, they were like super excited about something. Uh, <laughs> and I sat way in the back with my back turned toward them, but the whole way do door was open. So I want them to know that I was in there. And um, they told their story, I suppose. I don't know. I didn't listen. I couldn't care less what they had to say. And, but this woman that was there, she, was, she actually came and talked to me after the meeting, and she was just really happy, like <laughs> excited. And she was just like, she was beautiful and tall, and she was like kind of loud, and I don't know what she was so excited about. And, <laughs> She's just going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And uh, I'm like, detoxing, for God's sakes. <laughs> and, uh, but 22 years later, I still remember what she said. And, and she said, God loves you and AA works. And um, I wanted to hit her then, but <laughs> I, I, I was weak. <laughs> I didn't have any energy. And uh, she gives me her phone number, and she goes, call me when you get out. And, uh, and that woman had that commitment with the barely one year of sobriety. And, and she took that commitment and tried to carry the message, and she carried it to me. 
because I called her after I got out. <clears throat> My sister came in, picked me up, and, and she took me to this lunch. And the first thing out of her mouth, and she said, you disgust me. And uh, she didn't have to say it. I knew it. I knew I was one of these people that sold my soul for that next drink. That, that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization was right here. And, um, <clears throat> and I called her, <laughs> this woman, and I said, and she was so excited. She was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe you called. <laughs> she said, nobody ever calls me from the detox. <laughs> Um, and um, she said, we're going to go to a meeting. I'm like, oh, B. Um, anyway, so uh, she takes me to my first meeting, and uh, she kind of became my temporary sponsor. She was really annoying, though. But anyway, um, the, that first meeting, I don't remember anything. I know it was a speaker meeting. Somebody told their story, I guess. I, I couldn't care less. I didn't listen. And... Uh, but the very apparent thing I noticed in Alcoholics Anonymous, they were just way too happy. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't like that. I don't do people well. And I, you know, I have two social skills, avoid and ignore. And I just, <laughs> I just felt like there were just too many people and too many happy people. And, and I didn't like anything. I hated AA. I hated those things on the wall, the steps and traditions and all this God. And I mean, it's just, and I'm not one of these people who fell in love with the fellowship. Some people do. The first day they came in, they felt like, you know, they, they were in love and they loved the fellowship. That wasn't me. Um, and, but I, I really didn't have any place to go. My sister, I had to live with her because, you know, I was broke. I didn't have any money. And she was going to those Alana meetings, and she's trying to kill me every day. It's just, <laughs> and she hated my guts, and I didn't have a place to go. So I hated a hate so much, I walked to three meetings a day every day for a year. And um, I know that God had walked me to every one of those meetings. And I didn't even... I didn't even believe in God. And that's what's so weird about this whole thing. I don't know who orchestrates this stuff, but it happens in these rooms. And, and um, so I am, uh, I am one of those uh, really angry uh, newcomer, like in rage. <laughs> Which is actually a good sign. I don't trust happy newcomers. I, something's wrong, I think. I don't know. That's just my opinion. But uh, so I, 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 had, I, had, I got this reputation really quick, and I could the same club every day. And uh, they started calling me a hostile one um, because, you know, they will say things like, oh, you must be new. What is your name? And I'll say, hey, this is an anonymous program. I don't have to know your name. You don't have to know mine. Back off. And uh, although that's not exactly what I said, but I cannot repeat what I said. So, and and then this hug business really got on my nerves. Um, and they wanted to give me a hug, and I said, "Oh, hey, I don't need a hug. And back off." And they'll say things like, "What if I need one?" And I said, "Well, don't be so needy." Um, and. Uh, uh, Mike was talking about, you know, the approval thing. You know, I guess, I don't know, approval, pe people pleasing. I, I guess I had none of that. I don't know. But I, and I remember one of those uh, meetings, they were talking about people pleasing. And um, I didn't understand what that was. So I asked my sponsor, and I said, what does that mean? What does that mean? And she said, well, you should try it sometime. <laughs> She said, for you, it will be a spiritual experience. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I am like, I am just enraged and I'm angry and I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm telling everybody to back off. And, and, and this temporary sponsor I had, I had to get rid of her because, you know, she's annoying. Um, I don't know why newcomers think they could fire sponsors. It's just that 
just outrageous. But anyway, it's my story. That's the only one I got. So I walked up to her and I said, hey, this is not working out. You're kind of annoying. <laughs> so I'm going to find, a, I'm going to go look for another sponsor. And she said, oh, thank God my prayer has been answered. <laughs> um, so I got another sponsor, and her name was Mary Frances, and she's the one who took me through the steps. And um, I remember, like, telling her that there was no such a thing as God. God is for stupid people who doesn't know any better. And, and she said, well, then I guess you won't have any problem. And, um, <laughs> and, and so she will take me through the steps, and i never forget the day I did step five. And with, where I had to tell them all the things I'd done by selling my soul for that next drink that I thought I'll never tell anyone. And she came around the table and she gave me a hug and she said she loved me. And I didn't understand how anybody could love somebody like that, but I believed her. And um, when I was seven years sober, my uh, sponsor got diagnosed with lung cancer and they gave her six months to live. And uh, six months of sobriety, I was dying in Alcoholics but Seven years of sobriety, I was dying in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, all of a sudden, everybody in AA was stupid again. I don't know why that happens. And I was working 80 hours a week, week because I thought work was going to fix it, and I didn't know what that was. And I remember people, they still say it, if you want what we have, and I didn't know what that was, but it didn't look too good to me. But whatever it was, I didn't have it. And I'm, I'm looking at it from all these other places, and I'm overworked. I mean, I got promoted to VP, and it wasn't good enough, and I was working. And then my sponsor is dying of cancer, and I'm having to take care of her because her kids never forgave her for divorcing their father after she got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And... Uh, and my marriage wasn't working out. I got married when I was two years sober. I did that boy meets girl on an AA campus, and they lived, <laughs> they lived unhappily ever after. And um, we're separated, um, processing with the divorce, and we're living in the same house. And, and, and he, he was drinking. and I mean, it was just crazy, and I'm going out of my mind. And, and I am just in rage again and, and so much resentment. And uh, I remember people in AA said, why don't you write the inventory list and share it with the, your sponsor? I'm like, she's dying for God's sakes. And then they said, well, maybe she'll feel useful. So I remember sharing one of them with her, and I don't know if it was medication or the cancer spread to her brain. She said, well, we're just going to go ha have to kill that son of a bitch. And, um, <laughs> Um, I don't remember reading that in the book, so <laughs> I kept that resentment list. And what it was is that both my parents were on the, on the top of my list, and I thought I'd have done it and made amends and forgive them because you guys were telling me all the action part. Like, be the best story. You can be, don't forget the car, don't forget their birth. And they live in Seoul, Korea, half around the world. And, and I, would, I would do those action part. But every time I talk to them, I would be sitting in my chair just paralyzed with so much resentment. I didn't know what to do with it. Paralyzing. And um, what happened was when I was six months over, my mom wanted to come and see me and see how well I was doing and wanted to meet my sponsor. So all by herself, she flies half around the world from Korea and flies to Jacksonville. And, and, and I take her to that grungy, smoky, AA club that I went every day. And um, my sponsor is standing at the parking lot and she walks over to, my mom walks over to her and gives a hug. And I'm standing next to her and my mom starts sobbing. And I overhear her say, thank you for saving my daughter's life. And that moment, my fists went like this, my jaws were locked, and my thoughts were, I hate this woman. 
and I cannot believe she came over, pretend to care about me. It's just little too late. And that she's a sorry example of a mother. That is all I had, six months of sobriety. That resentment was so deep that, that I had that resentment. Well, that will last next seven years of my sobriety in um, Alcoholics Anonymous. For seven years, I became completely ineffective and useless in roommates of AA. And um, people walking around like, uh, you know, on a thin ice at work, they couldn't even, they were too afraid of me. And at home, I'm falling apart, you know. And uh, in AA, I'm completely useless because I couldn't sponsor anyone. They'll ask me to sponsor them, and then they'll fire me because they say, I'm too mean, I'm too critical, I'm too judgmental. <laughs> and they cannot trust me with their inventory. They're afraid that I'll judge them. And what I was doing is I was living on my parents' pathology. I was not beating them up physically, but I was beating them with the words. And um, the Don, he was, uh, Mike was talking about, he, he, he would say that uh, the most deprived of human being, the state that human being could be in is being and, and feeling useless. And um, I know that feeling. The nine-step promise where it says feeling of uselessness will disappear will never happen. And I'm in seven years sober. I ended up in, in the hotel room three in the morning, and that thought came to me one more time. And it said, I don't want to be drunk. I don't want to be sober. I just want to check out. And I have this inventory list. And the um, only reason I think it saved me from going out and drinking and relaxing is that I heard you guys' voice in that room, in the hotel, and also I thought about my, my sponsor who was dying, and I felt that I had needed to take care of her. And, and, she, was, and she wanted to go to these stupid meetings, and she's dying. And her hair's falling out. I had to take care of her, uh, take the oxygen tank. I don't want to go to these meetings, but she want to go to these stupid meetings, and I'll take her. And um, today I know that as she was dying, she was saving my life. And um, around that time, I go to the uh, woman's retreat, which is a miracle in itself, because <laughs> I wouldn't even go to woman's meeting for an hour. <laughs> um, because they are crying about something all the time, like, like I'm doing now, I guess. But, um. <laughs> I used to start crying in AA, for God's sakes. But um, anyway, I go to this woman's retreat, and I hear two speakers, and uh, one, one of them actually became my sponsor. She's my sponsor today. And I, I, I heard Polly say, how did your mother grow up? She was doing the inventory thing with someone else, not me. But she said, how did your mother grow up? And then I hear Michael say, um, before I tell you about my childhood, let me tell you about my mother's. And then it hit me that, that I'm supposed to put myself in their shoes. How did they grow up? And it's not that I didn't know how they grew up. I couldn't care less how they grew up. But I start thinking, something got to me that day. And I start thinking about how they grew up. And I tell you, my parents grew up terribly. They grew up um, until they were like age of 10 or 11. Uh, the Korea was under Japan ruling. Japan ruled Korea for 36 years. And one of the things that my mom, uh, they had to do as a kid, and they had to wear like name tag. And they were given, everybody was given Japanese name. You didn't have a Korean name anymore. And she, she was afraid to wear that home because she knew that if she wore that home, she was going to get beating from her father. So she refused to wear it, and then they wanted to make her an example. So they gather all those kids and all the teachers out in the schoolyard, and the Japanese principal came down and kicked her in the gut. And she fell on the floor, on the, on the ground, and every time she tried to get up, she'll, he'll kick her again and, and again and, and again. And I'm sure... At the time, she couldn't imagine being at home and being at school. And um, my, my uh, dad's family was very, very poor. 
His dad will like、uh, disappear. I don't know where he went, but he will disappear. And his mom, who cannot read or write, will have to go from house to house and beg for a bag of ri-、uh, rice to feed these nine kids, and three of them had to die from neglect and hunger. And、uh, my dad didn't even have shoes to go to schools, and、uh, he didn't even complete high school. But somehow he got a doctorate degree. I don't know how that happened. But anyway, she taught. He taught himself in public library school. Anyway, public library. So when I start thinking about how they grew up, what I begin to understand is the same Francis prayer that we always talk about. I begin to understand before I was understood. I begin to comfort them before I was comforted. I begin to love them before I was loved, and、uh, resentment was gone. And、uh, when I was about eight years old, my dad、uh, had a medical convention in Orlando, and so I was doing the, you know, the AA thing, do the bit of the best daughter you could be. But by this time, resentment was gone anyway. So I, I picked him up from the Orlando. He wanted to go to St. Augustine, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And we were talking about this and that. And I was driving the car, and he was sitting over here. And all of a sudden, he put his hand on my knee. And he said, "I wish I could have been a better dad to you." <clears throat> and、um, so they used to come and visit, but my mom's health is not very good, so she can't travel anymore. So we start the kids all here somewhere in the United States.、Uh, so we started to go visit them. In 2009, I was over there, and my mom was、uh, sitting on the floor doing the laundry.、Uh, I, folding the laundry, and she looked really tired and old. And I start thinking about her childhood, and I even thought about her adulthood because I watched my mother, who couldn't shed a single tear when her father died, when her mother died, when her only sibling died. But she stopped for me. So I was rubbing her back, and I said. Mom, you look really tired. And she turned around and she took my hand and she said, "I'm not proud of a lot of things I've done in my life, but I am most sorry for how I treated you." In that moment, I feel like I've forgiven for everything I've done. For the next drink, and the soul that I sold for the next drink, that little piece of it came back. And I'm forever grateful to AA and sponsorship and the program that you guys taught me to do the action, because my parents never knew that I resented them for seven years of my sobriety. They had no idea, because my action says something else. And I'm so grateful for that, because I didn't have to re-hurt them in order to make that amend. Because even if I had a million more lives to live, I will never be able to mend their hearts that have broken into little pieces. And、um, my sister, I tried to make amends to her for five years,、um, and every time I tried, she had a list of things I've done to her since I was five years old. <laughs> And I was thinking the Alanons are not teaching you much, but、uh, <laughs> I didn't say it. I just I just thought it at her. But anyway,、um, I was doing the action part, just like you said. And she eventually came around. And today she calls me on her birthday to wish me happy AA birthday. And、um, she thinks everybody should go to AA. <laughs> She she thinks AA is like the greatest thing ever.、Um, she has a friends or somebody who has a problem with alcohol or something. She's send them to the worst detox you could think of. <laughs> Keep them in there for ten days and send them straight to AA. <laughs> That's what she says. And、um, today、uh, I don't get fired from my sponsees. Sometimes I wish they would, but <laughs> woo. No, I'm just kidding.、Um, they are、uh, they are awesome. They actually they save my life. They really do, and、um, and I know that you guys know that. And uh, uh, one of those sponsors, and I think that's what Bill Wilson meant when he said, "Great events will come to pass for you and countless others." And I want to share one of those great events. One of my sponsors, 
and Carl knows her, and her name is April, and um, she has this uh, conference. She started a conference in Miami. I mean, I don't know. God, it's a lot of work. But anyway, <laughs> last year was the first year they did, and, and she has a similar background like I am. Her mother's side is Asian, and she was sent off to the boarding school and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, I met her mother on, on Saturday dinner time, and she came over to me, tears running down her face, and she gives me a hug, and she says, thank you for saving my daughter's life. And um, I finally got to see what my sponsor saw 22 years ago, the pain and unconditional love a mother has for their child. And my sponsor is gone, but I still hear the message, and I still get more healings from it. And if I wasn't participating in life of AA, that this would have never happened. 22 years is a little too long. I don't know. Maybe my God is slow, but <laughs> it still happens in these rooms. And um, I just want to uh, close with this. And I got to, I was at Georgia Show Roundup, and I think Carl was there, and, and they took me to uh, Dr. Silkworth's graveside. And it was like super exciting. I mean, I love history. Um, and and um, so Silkworth was asked to write a statement when they published this big book. And one of the last sentences they said was, uh, perhaps he came to scoff, but he may remain to pray. And I, I tell you that I came here doing a lot more than scoffing. <laughs> I hated it, <laughs> AA. Um, I hated AA so much, and I was so angry that I remember this guy one time came up to me and says, hey, did you think AA stands for angry Asian? Um, <laughs> um, it wasn't that funny, but... <laughs> um, but I did a lot more than scoffing. But not only that you guys let me stay here, Remain here. You guys didn't kick me out. You guys let me remain here. And you guys helped me find God. And you guys patiently taught me how to pray so I, can, I could continue to remain here and pray with you. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart.